Especially if we've grown up in the church, we've heard these passages. We're not unfamiliar with most of the Bible passages or most of the things that you would end up hearing taught from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. So if you learn to see them from a skeptic's perspective, or if you learn to see them with the idea that what we're studying in the Bible isn't just Christian philosophy, it isn't just Christian truth, it's the truth, it's real world truth. You start to see connections um, into real life in the text. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 20 of the Preaching Donkey podcast. I am your humble host, Lane Sebring. It's so awesome to have you on today. We've got an exciting interview with Lori Morrow, the creator of the SpoonFedSoul.com. You're really going to enjoy this interview. Lori is an apologist and she works with women to give them confidence and courage so they can live out and speak about their faith with confidence. So we're going to talk all about her approach to speaking to and connecting with her audience, both online and in person. It's going to be really, really great. We get into a lot of issues surrounding apologetics and some current issues. I think you're really going to love it. This is episode 20. Like I said, I'm so excited that you're here. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe, give this video a like, leave a comment below, let me know what you think about today's interview. If you're listening over on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, I'm very, very happy that you're listening. Go over to Apple Podcasts if you don't mind, leave a review if it's five star. If it's not, just don't worry about it. <laughs> There's no reason to, to go to it. But without any further delay, I want to get to the interview with Lori Morrow. Lori Morrow, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. It's so great to have you. Well, I am really thrilled to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I talked a little bit before we jumped on about who you are and kind of what you're doing, and we're going to get into all that. But before we do, could you kind of bring us up to speed, just a little bit of history of how you got into apologetics and speaking and ministering this way? Yeah, sure. Um, I am super lucky. The majority of my testimony is really boring. I grew up in um, a Christian home and I um, grew my walk with the Lord and had no major issues at all until I was an adult and I kind of had my own version of a crisis of faith, not the kind of crisis of faith that our young people are having today where they're walking away from the church or doubting the existence of God or anything like that. I just had a personal crisis and um, Luckily for me, because I'd had a Christian background, I was able to come back to my faith really quickly. God wooed me back, I should say, to his side pretty quickly. And since I was familiar with the Christian worldview, it didn't take me very long to be convinced. And so I started at that point um, really digging into the basics, personal Bible study, personal prayer life, um, spiritual goals like reading through the Bible in a year and you know, spending time alone, quiet time, fasting, those sorts of things. And I realized that my personal crisis of faith had happened as a result of essentially um, allowing myself to become spiritually starved, which is why I call my online persona the spoon-fed soul, because we cannot rely on our pastors and our parents to teach us about God. We've got to do it ourselves. We've got to take responsibility to develop our own biblical worldview through our own personal pursuit of the Lord in his word. And so um, when I started doing that and really owning my faith for myself, things in my life changed almost overnight from really kind of the worst case scenario to the best case scenario in a really short period of time. And I wanted everybody to experience that. And so I started teaching, I started prayer journaling, and I would talk about my prayer journaling. And some people asked me, you know, 
we, we all are interested in prayer journaling, but none of us really know where to start. Can you, can you show us what you do? And so that was my very first opportunity. I had grown up singing. I've grown, I've sung in front of all sorts of audiences of all sorts of sizes, but I had never spoken. And so I started speaking to women, teaching them how to do personal Bible study and a, and a prayer life and effective quiet time and journaling. And that kind of got me started. And it was great. It was really wonderful. I thought this is my way to, to really serve the Lord in my own unique capacity and I loved it and I was really crazy about it. And then something happened and I couldn't put my finger on it at the time, but um, um, something in my life changed and I ended up changing churches. And I, I went to a church that just had a different feel to it. It had a different emphasis to it. At the same time, I'm watching the world around me suddenly become bitter and resentful toward the church and less and less open toward the church. And of course, I've grown up in the church and I was comfortable with the church. And goodness gracious, Jesus literally saved my life um, at that point in my life. So I couldn't figure out why everybody didn't love Jesus. And so I started trying to figure out what was going on and how I could roll up my sleeves and, and help. And I uh, bumped into, um, I would imagine it's much more of a providence, a providential accident than just an accident. I bumped into a curriculum online at Biola University called um, Master of Apologetics. I'm sorry, Master of Arts in Christian Apologetics. And I started looking through that course list and the classes were amazing. Why does God allow evil? The evidence for the resurrection, um, the reliability of the New Testament scriptures. And I knew immediately, I already had um, two graduate degrees and I thought, oh my gosh, the last thing I need is another graduate degree. <laughs> but I filled it out and I clicked submit and became a part of the and Biola Apologetics program, and it has been the best thing and the coolest thing that I have ever done. And so now I basically try to talk apologetics with anybody who will stand still long enough to let me talk. Well, I love that. And you've, you've done a, a lot of things with your, uh, you know, everybody talks about what you did with your degree. You're actually using it every single day online. You do speaking. Before yeah. COVID, you were doing a lot more speaking, I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> um, right. And now that's, you know, COVID has changed things. But when you speak, when you go on your YouTube channel, when you're ministering, what are some of the things that have made it uh, easier for you to make those really complicated because apologetics is a complicated science. I mean, it, when it comes to all of the theological, um, you know, areas, apologetics is a tough one. So yeah. how do you bring simplicity and clarity to really complicated topics like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Andy Stanley has a method that he, I don't think he has a name. He just describes it. He says, memorable is portable. So when you're making a point, People don't remember everything that you say. And so if you want them to walk away with anything, you have to make it something that they will remember. And so he uses memorable is portable. And then a really similar idea I learned through Lisa Turkhurst at one of her Proverbs 31 um, speakers conferences called She Speaks. And she really sold the concept of the sticky statement. And that's the idea of when you're making a point, it's the same idea as Andy Stanley has. You want to make it powerful and short and memorable so that it stays with your audience. They may not remember all the, the verses that you listed or even the stories that you told, although usually stories are pretty memorable as well. But if you can sum it all up in a little statement that has a phrasing to it or it rhymes or it just is really, really um, catchy and deep and communicates something really powerfully very quickly, that those are really those are really helpful. I, I, am, I went back to some of my YouTube videos and I wrote them down, wrote a couple down that I happen to like. So for instance, um, one of them is truth is soul food. 
So feed yourself well. So that's one of them. So that would be talking about like the truth of the Bible versus the truth of the world. Um, I think I used that when I was teaching on Jeremiah um, 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And so we have to feed ourselves the truth. Um, another one, the one I just did, I'm, I'm doing a video, um, a live Bible study um, this afternoon after I get finished with you, actually. And um, it's on James 3.15, which contrasts godly wisdom with earthly wisdom. And so my sticky statement is true wisdom needs a combination of human reason and revelation. Revelation being not just the book of Revelation, but God's whole revealed word, because we have to, we can't just think independently. We've got to train ourselves to think according to the word of God. And so, um, I, so I stuck those together. And since it rhymes, that's really helpful. So let's, and, let's stop and, there. What I love about that is I'm guessing that during your video, or if this were a talk during your talk, that's a refrain that you're probably going to repeat all throughout that message. So by the time sure. you're done, you, you would have said it several times, correct? Sure. Yeah, that's the best way to use them, I think, to build up, um, to build up as many, as much um, um, tension or questions or unresolved tension, and then use that sticky statement to resolve the tension. I find is really, really powerful. And then as often as you can repeat the sticky statement, kind of as a see, this is how this works. This works in this case. It works in that case. Um, that's really, really helpful to help them. Um, come away with something that they don't have to write down. It's not complicated. They can commit it to memory more or less uh, really quickly on a short, uh, on a really short basis. And they can remember it. They can kind of attach it to um, the larger concept or the verse um, that you were teaching. Yeah. I love, so, so then if they walk away with nothing else, they're at least walking away with the connection between wisdom, reason, and revelation that if they've right. got those three ingredients, then, you know, reason and revelation is going to lead to wisdom when applied correctly. Uh, that's, that's really huge. That that's, that's an effective strategy. And I think a lot of people watching or listening, uh, you know, we talk about bottom line, you know, a one point yeah. sermon or a bottom line, and the more memorable and sticky you can make your bottom line, the more effective it's going to be, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's definitely something about, you know, the tricks of the trade, the rhymes, the alliteration, um, plays on words. Those things really, um, those things are um, unusual. They're in our normal conversation. We don't normally talk poetically or in rhythm or with rhyme. And so those things stick out in our memory because they don't fit your natural kind of random conversation. And so those things really stay in someone's mind longer and it enables them to connect all the points that you made or the stories that you told with that sticky statement. Yeah, that's huge. So I interrupted you. You, you had a few more examples. So let's, let's hear what those are. Yeah, with, um, especially with, that's, that's actually, I, sh I should say this, I should clarify that the sticky statements I find work really well. They probably work well in any situation, but specifically in teaching biblical truths, they do. Um, when I'm teaching apologetics, sometimes I have to, to explain a philosophical concept. And that's a little more difficult. And so um, I try to use analogies whenever possible or stories whenever possible. For instance, anytime the moral argument or a moral question comes up and I'm trying to teach that morality is actually evidence for God. When we talk, when we get to the, into the realm of moral principles, um, they don't have a material basis. They have an immaterial, they're immaterial things. And so it actually points to the reality of God, but that's really hard to understand. Although everybody experiences the understanding of what a moral is, basically the fact that we have consciences, those sorts of things. And so in order to explain um, why morality really has to exist in a Christian worldview, 
as opposed to a secular worldview, that may not be something I can tidy up together with a sticky statement, nice and neat and short. And so, um, so I've come up with an analogy. And so if your child were to come to you and ask you for soup, and they specifically requested for you to grill them some soup in the freezer, <laughs> that would be a really hard thing for you to do. Can you explain just off the top of your head why that's a difficult thing, why that's a difficult request? Yeah, it's impossible. I mean, you're not going to do that. Yeah. Right. It's impossible. Okay. So, and for all you guys out there who are sports fanatics, I, I have one for you too. Same thing, same idea being expressed. Um, so what would happen if you, if somebody asked you how many points you would get if you threw the football through the hoop baseball field? <laughs> well, you wouldn't get it. I mean, because each one of those, each one of those requests or each one of those things fits in its own separate sphere, right? Footballs are for football fields and hoops are for basketball and baseball is for baseball fields. Just like soup is not for a grill. Grills are for steaks and chicken and kebabs and things like that. So that's exactly the same kind of situation we find ourselves when we talk about morals. So when we're in a conversation with maybe a non-believer or a Christian who's struggling with some secular thoughts, anytime we're talking about a moral principle, it will never have a material secular grounding. Morals are the kinds of things that only exist if God existed in order to, in order to establish that immaterial moral principle. And so that may not function well in a sticky statement, but it certainly functions well with the analogy because you can remember that it's impossible to grill soup in a freezer. That yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, that's huge. That's a, and, and, you know, what you do, I think is, would be really helpful to share if you were to, if you were to help the people listening who are used to giving sermons where you look at a text and you draw out an outline and you, you know, you have a bottom line and you have illustrations and application and you're preaching a text. But let's say that that, that same person wants to introduce some apologetics to uh, their church defense of, of faith, how to know that Jesus is who he says he was, defense for the resurrection, truth, morality, things like that. What are some ways that pastors can begin to introduce those things in a way that uh, makes sense to them, makes sense to their church, and is the best way to get started? That is a great question. I have to tell you, I, since I have been studying apologetics, uh, I have found that if I will read my text, my, my um, whatever passage I'm in, with apologetics-driven eyes, looking for ways to connect the dots between what the scripture says and real life, um, most of the time, we've, especially if we've grown up in the church, we've heard these passages, we've, we've been, we're, not, we're not unfamiliar with most of the Bible passages or most of the things that you would end up hearing taught from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. So if you learn to see them from a skeptic's perspective, or if you learn to see them with the idea that the Christian, that the, what we're studying in the Bible isn't just Christian philosophy, it isn't just Christian truth, it's the truth, it's real world truth, you start to see connections um, into real life in the texts. For instance, there is a spot where Jesus, um, um, what does he say? Well, I'll tell you what, this might be easier. Paul says in Romans, you who preach these things, then you, you still do them. You'll be judged too because you do them. Okay, so if we take that apart and see what Paul is actually saying, he's basically talking the principle of non-contradiction, 
because you can't have something that fits in two categories at the same time. And so um, he, so when we say that this is true and this is not true, or you can do this, but you can't do this, then you're talking about the principle of non-contradiction. And so that's kind of what he's teaching in that text, although the text specifically in its context is a specific issue. You can take a look at those and see that there are real world applications, even from those texts that you can make with, um, with the modern day audience. Um, there are all kinds of things, especially around the resurrection, like the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, um, the setting of the guard. For instance, a lot of people are, are curious as to why we would think, Christians would think, that Jesus would actually be um, able to be alive, to live again after his death, after his crucifixion. And so presumably, as the story goes, the Bible doesn't really give much of a, a defense for that, but that's actually not true. We see that there were all sorts of spices. For instance, if somebody said that maybe, this is called the swoon theory, maybe Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, maybe he just passed out and he revived in the tomb. Um, he swooned, in other words. Well, then we'd have to take into account Joseph of Arimathea, who showed up with 75 pounds of spices, got permission from Pilate to take the body personally and dress it for burial. So it would take a long time, especially back in those days, to dress a body with 75 pounds of spices and then wrap it up. He's got intimate um, exchange with the body. He's, he's dressing it. He's washing it. He's putting spices on. He's wrapping it up. If that body was not dead... Joseph of Arimathea would have known about it. And then when Jesus went missing, Pilate would have come after Joseph of Arimathea to demand answers because Pilate gave the body to Joseph. So there are all sorts of little things that if we just open our eyes to the apologetic value in those stories that are, that are kind of familiar to us, there are all kinds of ways that we can begin to sprinkle the truth of the Christian worldview even to an otherwise discipleship-oriented text. I love that. There's so much, there's so much in there. And I think, I think if, if pastors could take an approach with any text, if I'm hearing what you're saying, any text, the one of the questions, one of the many questions that you ask when you're trying to make sense of how do I communicate this? What's the application? How do, how do I explain this concept? Another question is what is the apologetic principle here? Like how, how does this show evidence for God? How does this show evidence for God's goodness? How does this show evidence for absolute truth? Because what you're saying is there is, there are those principles all throughout scripture. Yes. They just need to be mined. Yes, absolutely. You just have to learn to develop an eye for them, especially if you've been studying the Bible for very long, because some of the lessons you've heard often enough and you're familiar enough with them that your mind automatically goes, oh yeah, I know this text or this passage teaches this concept. And so you forget that there might be something else embedded in that text that you just haven't looked for before. And that's especially true in the Old Testament. Um, so much of the New Testament is direct instruction. But in the Old Testament, there are all sorts of archaeological um, issues that have come up in archaeology. All the studies in archaeology, there has never been once that has refuted um, what the Bible has had to say about names and dates and locations. So that's really good information to stick into a sermon. Hey, by the way, for those of you who are a little concerned that the Old Testament might not be accurate or 
might not be true or it might not be reliable. Let me just tell you and then fill in that archaeological detail. That really helps somebody as they're studying to know that they're basically looking over the shoulder of Jeremiah or Isaiah. They're watching him as he pens his stories and his locations and the, the people to whom he dates his letters. Those are all really good embedded truths that allow us to connect the dots for our, for our congregations and our disciples about why the Bible can actually be trusted to be telling the truth. Yeah, that's so good. You know, it's, it's, I had a conversation, a similar conversation about the exact same thing just a few weeks ago. We had our neighbors over from across the street and we were talking about the Bible. And one of the things that I, I brought up just because I wanted to demonstrate the veracity of scripture and how trustworthy it is, is just early manuscripts versus late. And when right. you compare them, they're identical, less a few grammatical, I mean, a small percentage of, of variants that, you know, can be explained through, you know, scribal error, things like that. But it's amazing that manuscripts that are hundreds of years apart are essentially in effect the exact same text which is which is just one of the many ways that that this kind of thing can be explained and um to just know that no other historic document has anywhere near close to the amount of textual evidence or textual yeah. like just magnitude of manuscript evidence those kind of things are really exciting and i feel like in seminary, when you learn, and even if you, you know, if you go to Bible college, seminary, unless your degree is a, uh, a concentration in apologetics, you might get one or two classes, then you move on and you start just doing church, right? You start yeah, doing yeah. ministry sure. and the whole goal is preach the sermon and that's all really important. But these issues are so vital and especially right now, and they always have been, but they are right now. Uh, so I love, I love that encouragement. I think to anyone listening, being able to look at any text and pull out those principles is, is just huge. It, it definitely is, because we are, we are definitely in unprecedented, at least it seems to me to be unprecedented waters with the amount of people that are struggling to believe that, that God is real, that the Bible is telling the truth, and that God and the Bible are good. We used to just have to teach them or to try to persuade people that, that the Bible was telling the truth. Now we have to persuade people that God and his, his ways are actually good and moral. And so it's really important to bolster people's confidence in God and in the texts any chance we get. Can you talk about that, that change? When you say we've got to convince people that God and the Bible are good, uh, help, help us understand what led to that and what, how, do we, how do we see that? How do you see that kind of happening right now? Sure. It's really such a long story. I, 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 wonder, I wonder how we all got here, especially those of us who are Christians, without it having been a bigger issue earlier on. Um, one of the things that has happened is that we have, obviously, we live in a country and a time, I should say, it's kind of everywhere, um, where relativism is kind of a, a predominant belief. We just, most people on the street believe that right and wrong is dependent on the individual, the individual situation, the individual judgment. So anytime you have um, a relativist perspective, which is you know, awfully common in um, today's um, media and in um, well, just in, in average ordinary interactions with people, then anytime we say, but the Bible says do it this way, that seems to conflict with the idea for them anyway, that, um, that right and wrong is of their own choosing. 
And so the Bible loses its authority, and, and God does too by extension. He loses the authority to determine what is right and what is wrong in the light of a relativist perspective on morals. And then that sort of compounds when we realize that not only are most people in our society um, relativists, they're also pluralists, which means that all different ideas of what is right and wrong and true are all equally valid with all of the others. There is no one idea of truth or of morality that sort of outranks or breaks the tie from all the others. They're, they're all kind of the same. And so when we talk about God being Jesus being the only way or God being um, the only truth, to them, that seems almost like an arrogant, ugly, immoral kind of thing to say, to be able to challenge everyone else as though what God is actually saying is you're all worse than me or, or Christians are worse, better than everyone else. Everyone else is worse than Christians. And that's not at all what, what God is saying. And so um, the combination of relativism and pluralism also makes most people really resist the idea that there is any one truth of any kind and Christians are sort of out of line to be able to say or to assert that, um, that Christianity is true and that the Bible's morals, moral principles have an authority when none of the others do. So that's, that's really problematic. And so a lot of people are very, right off the bat, are very resistant and a little bit resentful that Christianity kind of takes that stance. And then at some point or another, we kind of moved into postmodernism, which um, right over the top, sort of like frosting on the cake, sort of says, well, truth doesn't even really, we don't even know that truth really exists. And even if it does, then we, we can't know what it is. And so that makes Christianity really, um, when people say, when a Christian says this is true or that is true or God is real, basically what people understand that to be is an attempt for someone in a position of power or influence to use their position to force an idea as truth simply in order to protect their own position of power. So we really have the odds, philosophically speaking, stacked against us. So we have to somehow communicate and break through all those barriers in some way in order to help people realize that the Christian worldview is telling the truth and that there are ways that we can know it's telling the truth. And that's the really important part. Gosh, there, there, there's so much there. I, I think, you know, it, it really is interesting that at one point in the U.S., maybe, this may have been 40 years ago, 50 years ago, um, really all you had to do was get people to cross the line of accepting what they, what they knew to be true. Like they know, like yeah. they knew about Jesus. They probably believed in God, but it was a matter of, are you going to kind of put all your eggs in that basket and live for Jesus? Now we're backing up 50 steps, right? Where yes. we're not even we're not even there. We're, we're back here. Where do you even believe in the concept of truth to begin with? And is it yes. knowable? Um, yes. And so that really changes the way we approach uh, evangelism, right? Because if we're still banking on everybody's got this assumed, you know, knock on the door. Yeah. If you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Well, what's heaven? Who is God? Those kind of things are are huge. Yeah. You know, there's something else you said that maybe this, this made me think of this. This morning, I was at the gym and I heard uh, some people talking and this, this one woman said, and just, this was just an off-the-cuff statement. People were talking about prayer and it was kind of in a, a joking context. And she said, well, pray to, pray to whatever God you want to. And, and then she said, I mean, at this point, what difference does it make? So oh. 
and and I live in a very Christian uh, community. In turn, I mean, I'm in the South. I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee. You can't throw a rock without hitting someone that has a Baptist background or some kind of yeah. Christian background. Um, and what comes with that is a lot of cultural Christianity where everybody identifies right. as a Christian, but you would never really know that because there's not much of a relationship with Jesus. It's just, well, I'm not not Christian, so I guess I'm Christian. So it, it's just, it's an interesting thing. But I think, I think one thing that comes to mind, there's so much there, but the, one, of the, one last thing I want to mention, and then I want to hear what you think about this, is that the idea of there being an exclusive way to God, okay, however God's defined, how to get to God, that way being exclusive is not a uniquely Christian idea. We are not the only religions to believe in one way. Uh, so why do you think it is that Christians tend to get the bad rap <laughs> for, for that belief when, you know, aside from some, you know, some religions that maybe don't have that same framework, uh, that's very common to say our way or, or you're, you're not going to get to God. Right. That is such a great question. Um, I spoke on this um, to our, my old church youth group not too long ago. And I'm wondering if you know, you probably do. This wasn't around when I had my babies, but do you know what a gender reveal cake is? Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, basically they are really well decorated on the outside, but the way they're decorated on the outside doesn't give anything away as to what's on the inside. And so you have to cut through the cake. You actually have to pull out a slice or whatever the case may be in order to get to the filling. And typically they'll have the inside of the cake baked or filled according to the color of the baby. And that's how you find out what, what gender a woman is carrying. Okay. So I kind of think that what's actually happening is that um, Satan has decided that if he can get the, the frosting on the cake to look the same and to taste the same, most people will never actually cut the cake to get to the middle to find out what the worldview cake actually says. And so you can't figure out the differences between worldviews until you get down to the principles and the frosting on the cake, if you're following me, ultimately, except for Christianity, we are the only ones, except for Christianity, the frosting on the cake typically is some degree of moralism. You have to do the right things. You have to be a good person. You have to be kind. You have to not kill someone. There's just this kind of general superficial expectation of moral performance, however the individual groups might define it, but it ultimately comes out to basically the same thing. There are certain things you should do and certain things you shouldn't do, and as long as you meet those criteria, you're going to be okay with God. You're going to get to um, a relationship with God. You're going to be accepted by God as long as you meet those, the frosting. As long as you eat the frosting, you're going to get to God. And so Christianity is the only one that says, no, that's not how it works. We do it a whole different way. He comes to us. He makes us acceptable. We don't make ourselves acceptable through moral performance. And so even though each individual religion or religious system or religious thought, each worldview may have its own different idea of what that frosting has, the requirements of that frosting, it's all basically the same idea, which is some degree of moralism. And so that is why they kind of tend to escape the charge and we don't because it's not about performance. Yeah. And you know, that is why that's such a good point because that is why I, I get so infuriated when I see a Christian preacher teaching moralism. Yes. Because I, I, I want to say th that is the only distinction 
between Christianity and other religions is that every world religion says, here is God, and here's what you have to do to work your way to him, her, it, whatever. That's every world religion. Christianity says, here is God, and he came down and became one of us, took mm-hmm. our place, died for, in our place for our sins, so that we cannot earn it. And that, to your point, is why it's so offensive. Because yes. basically, it's you can be moral, you can do all the right things, and still fall short of the glory of God. Exactly, and it still won't work. Right. Right. And, that, and that's, that's utterly offensive. It's, it, you know, it's like Paul said, it's the stench of death and it's the yes. gift of, of life and, and love or whatever. I can't remember what he said. But the point is, he said something to the effect of to some people hate it and other people it sets them on fire and it makes them feel alive. Uh, that's a rough paraphrase of what Paul said. <laughs> but the point is, um, it's a huge, huge stumbling block. So I think that's just another thing that as we preach and teach and create sermons and really try to reach a world that is opposed to the message of Christ, we have to understand that's what we're walking into. And it doesn't matter if you live in Knoxville, Tennessee, like I do, or the Dallas, uh, Fort Worth area, like you do, or any other major city, whether it's a Christian city, non-Christian city, that it just people are people and they're going to take the easy way. Um, which is, and it's awfully easy to fall into. I mean, even, even in our Christian churches, so often we hear, we get confused because we hear live the way you're supposed to live, live the way you're supposed to live, live right, do the right things. The difference is, is that Christian preachers who are doing it right, aren't saying live the right way so that you can be saved. It's live the right way so that people will see Jesus. We're supposed to be living a certain way because that there's only one way to reflect his character and it's in holiness and it's an integrity and honesty and uprightness and righteousness. So we're supposed to live that way, not for our own sake, but for his. And that's a big difference. Yeah. I heard Tim Keller say one time that religion teaches, uh, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Christianity teaches I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So let's talk about church in, in general, church leadership. So you've been on staff at churches before. And uh, so you've got your, your own ministry. You've been on staff. You've been involved. What do you see as challenges within church leadership and particularly for women in leadership? What, what, have, what has been your experience and what would you say to encourage maybe other women who are listening or the pastors and preachers who are listening who want to better empower the women in, in their church? Sure. Um, I've had two, two particular challenges that I kind of run into over and over for the most part. And they tend to, to go hand in hand. And so since your audience is um, largely a lot of preachers and speech, speakers and um, that sort of thing, I'm hoping that we can really um, turn the lights on so that we can start working together. And number one is that a lot of preachers aren't super interested in apologetics for whatever reasons they might have. And the other is that women aren't really particularly interested in apologetics for some reason. I think they think it's kind of a man thing. Maybe they think it's argumentative or um, or maybe they just don't have time. Maybe they're just so swamped with their family duties and potentially also work outside of home duties that they don't really want to take the time. And they're already doing Bible study. They don't have to take the time to, to, to stop and do something else or learn something else. I'm not really sure. Maybe it's probably a combination of all of the above. But the reality is, is that God has told us that um, the church is going to survive to the end of the age. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. And yet he has given us the responsibility to pass the baton of faith 
to our family, to the next generation. We're supposed to talk about it when we sit down and talk about it when we rise up and talk about it when we go out and when we come in. So it is our responsibility to the best of our ability to pass our faith down to our kids. And like I mentioned before, there is a huge crisis of faith going on with the next generation. So from my perspective as a mom and as an apologist and as a prayer journaling and Bible study workshop teacher, it seems to me that there is this huge need, which is to somehow effectively communicate the truth of the Christian worldview to the next generation and the natural resource for meeting that need so that the future generations will, will uphold and be faithful to Christ are the women. Now, even if we don't have children yet, or we're done with our children, most women, even if they're not actively raising children, are interested in children's issues because it's such a natural fit for women. And so typically they're involved in Sunday school, they're involved in youth groups. So women, if we can equip women, moms and women, even women who aren't moms yet, if we can equip them with some basic apologetic skills so that they can teach the idea that the Christian worldview isn't just something your parents are trying to sell you. It's not just something your pastor is trying to teach you. It's the truth of the real world. If we can teach them those skills and help them to be able to answer the questions in the youth group when they come up or with their own kids or with their neighbor's kids, if we can teach them to be resources, we can make an enormous difference in the church. We can start turning around some of the things that we are dealing with in our culture today simply by using the women of the church and teaching them apologetics and equipping them to speak the truth of the Christian worldview in the domain where they are already so comfortable and so interested and typically the most involved. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I think, I think so. And this is one of the things that I love about your ministry, the Spoon Fed Soul, and what you're doing is you're really showing women the joys of apologetics. And, yeah. and you're able to do that, obviously, as a woman, but showing them how intricate it is to your experience of faith. And I think your influence goes well beyond uh, women and well beyond even just Christian women you are reaching and you're going to continue to reach a, a huge audience with a really important message. And I know one of the things that you're very passionate about is what is happening to the church uh, with the, our systems of belief and thought and how much they're being impacted by secular belief and thought. So could you speak to what you see is the issue there and what we can do about it as, sure. as ministry leaders? I think, um, I think a lot, first of all, let me say this. I think a lot of churches are doing a really good job being faithful to the gospel, being faithful to the Bible, being faithful to God and the cause of Christ in the world. I think a lot of churches are being very faithful to teach individual members of their church uh, the responsibility of um, self-discipleship, reading the word, um, investing yourself in prayer, and obedience, developing our personal obedience and pursuing the Lord closely and diligently and intentionally on a daily basis. So that's really good. Unfortunately, what our churches have not done well, if we considered our own personal walk with the Lord to be sort of a vertical connection to, to God, what our churches have not done well uh, consistently enough in the last few decades is to be able to equip the individual members with the truth of the Christian worldview as it relates to the world outside the church. And so, so many times we don't have that horizontal understanding that, yes, God is our God and we believe him and we love him and serve him because we believe him. 
but he's still true and his truths are still true even in the larger context of the unbelieving world, the secular world. And so we have to be able to speak those truths outside the church walls in order to really effectively carry out um, the Great Commission as, as we're instructed to do. And so in order for that to happen, there are some, some truths that are embedded in the Christian worldview that we need to make sure don't get lost and don't get skipped over or minimized, which then allow um, secular thought to come in. Like for instance, um, I know I have not personally studied the Enneagram, so I'm not going to um, make any huge proclamations about the Enneagram, but uh, depending on who you talk to, there are apologists who have a background in the new age or the occult, and they can say with some confidence that the Enneagram has links to the occult and if that's the case, then we as Christians need to be awfully discerning about whether or not we let that into our churches. Um, lots of churches kind of have this, um, what was identified a few years ago in a study as called moralistic therapeutic deism, which has kind of invaded our churches, which is basically what you and I were talking about just a yeah, few minutes yeah. ago. If God will like me and accept me if I just do the right things. God is there. He loves me. He cares about me, but he's a little bit distant. If I just do the right things, then, um, then I'll be accepted by him and he will take care of me. That is a real big influence in the church. The idea of self-esteem, this idea that our faith in God is supposed to be something that makes us feel better about ourselves and is supposed to be something that allows us blessing from the Lord. And of course, we know that when we obey the Lord, there are blessings that go along with that, but that isn't actually the message of the gospel. And so um, the, the true message of the gospel is, is that we don't deserve um, forgiveness, that we are guilty. And that doesn't do anything to help humans, just mere humans with their self-esteem issues. And so if we have a church that's focusing on making their congregants feel important and special and loved and, for, and they forget to balance that with the gospel, then we have a church whose message is out of balance. Yeah, that's, that's so huge. And, and that that concept of moralistic therapeutic deism is the prevailing religion of, of the U S for sure, but also a lot of modern Christianity. And, and the key word there is deism. God is uninvolved. He's, he's, I think in the book, I cannot remember the book that introduced that idea. Um, but I remember one of the things in that book, he said that we, we view God as this benevolent grandfather. Mm-hmm. That that God is is kind of Papa Bear, you know, and huh. and we can we can just say God, you know, I need this, and okay, sure, I wasn't paying attention, but whatever you need, I'm happy to give it to you, sixty bucks for your birthday or whatever, and then God goes off and does God things, and we get to live our lives until we need Him again, and then the the therapeutic is we want to feel good, right? Like you said, we want to feel good about ourselves, we want to feel good, feel good about our lives, and I think if pastors are not careful, because here's the trap. And I know, I know you know this. I know every pastor listening knows this. The trap that so many pastors fall into is we want to be liked. Yes. And teaching moralistic therapeutic deism is a one-way ticket to being liked by man, yes. liked by people. Um, but it's not faithful to God, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think also we are told that if we tell people the truth, it will so put them off that they won't ever come back. They won't ever listen. And there may be some truth to that to some degree, but I have found that when you are able to cut through the fog and the noise and teach someone the truth, somehow, somewhere, in in most cases, certainly not all cases, but in a lot of cases, 
people somehow have that moment where they're like, I know what she's telling me is true. <laughs> I don't really want to hear what she's telling me, but I know that what she's telling me is true. And then they, they do come back and it may not be immediate. It may, it may, it may inflame some people for a while and make them angry. But in lots of cases, I have heard people who were angry at the moment, especially the ones who get angry enough to try to, to refute Christianity. And then they dig into the scripts, into the texts, and then find out, oh my goodness, this pastor was telling me the truth, or this workshop, Bible study workshop leader, or this YouTube evangelist was telling <laughs> me the truth. And now that I know the truth, then I'm, I can be healed and I can be free. And I can find that thing that I've been looking for my whole life that has evaded me in all, all the other ways I've looked for it. And then they realize that even though your message wasn't necessarily painless, it was still healing and it was still valuable and they will come, they'll be more open to it than we think. So I, I, I identify with that struggle because even I struggle with it, especially as an apologist, because there are so many things I just have to shoot straight on. And, um, and I really have to be careful that I'm balancing my words for the purpose of making the truth clear and not necessarily for making it totally palpable because that's not always possible. Yeah. I, yeah. I, th there's so many things that we have to do as pastors that it requires a dependency on the Lord and a resoluteness in our calling. You know, we have to just kind of know this is what I'm called to. I'm not always going to be liked for it. I think, especially in America, we've enjoyed, you know, a couple centuries of, you know, freedom and the ability to say what we want to say and do what we want to do. And I think that, you know, those days are kind of coming to an end. Um, I'm not like a doom and gloom kind of guy, but I'm just saying like, we have to acknowledge that things are different and the pace is very fast. So this is the time to get used to not being, you know, liked. Um, I think, you know, a lot of pastors react to what they don't want to be. So maybe like if, you know, if, you, if you're like me, I, I grew up with a background being very, you know, I grew up in a very legalistic uh, environment where there was a lot of extra biblical standards, right? That were heaped on. It was kind of the other way where it's like, just like what Paul was mad about in Galatians, you know, you, these people come to Christ and you're trying to add on these other things to the gospel. So if you've been exposed to that, you, you want to minimize it so much that there's a temptation there to make it kind of easy um, yeah. so that people don't accuse you of being one of those people. So I think there's so many traps, and that's why faithfulness to the Word, faithfulness to the Lord uh, is, is such a huge part of all this. And I know, I know you'd agree. Yeah, absolutely. So this has been really, really helpful. And I want to ask, what would you, um, what would be a, like for people who want to reach out? Cause I, I would imagine there's going to be people who want to see your work, uh, know what you're doing, maybe reach out to you. So where can they go and how can they find you? Sure. Um, my website is called, um, it's www.thespoonfedsoul.com. Again, that's a reference to our, our need to stay connected to the word and take responsibility for feeding ourselves the word, thespoonfedsoul.com. I do also have a YouTube channel, which is probably my most active, most active place where you can find me online. And I try to, um, I try to do Bible study videos and apologetics content as well, kind of back and forth, a good mix of both. And um, you can find it, I think, if you, if you search The Spoon-Fed Soul on YouTube, but also Lori B. Morrow will get you there as well. And um, of course, if you have a specific question or um, something that you want to contact me directly, my email is lori at the spoonfedsoul.com. 
Awesome. Well, this has been really, really helpful. And I'm so grateful to you for coming on because this is, I'm going to have to have you on again, because we're going to have to dig into some of yeah. these topics even deeper. And, but this was really, really great. And thank you so much for coming on today. You bet. It was my pleasure. I loved it. And God bless you to, to you and for all that you are doing. And thanks again for letting me have this, um, this little bit of time with you and, and your audience. Absolutely. Well, I'm so appreciative of Lori for coming on the show today. I think we got an incredible perspective of someone who obviously is very passionate about making sure that people can understand and live out their faith. If you want to go further with her, thespoonfedsoul.com. And I've got links in the description below if you're watching on YouTube. There's also links in the show notes. Go check out what she has to offer. And remember, until next time, if God can speak through a donkey, which he did, numbers 22, he can speak through you and he can speak through me. We'll see you next time here on the Preaching Donkey Podcast.